Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Hello all and welcome to episode 54 of the Presentation Boss podcast and we're up to that uh, period in the rotation where we do a speech breakdown and today's talk is a little bit special. It got recommended to us by a listener. So hello and thank you to Steve Bates. He, uh, he sent me a message and said he's been following the work of Malcolm Gladwell a fair bit lately but this talk uh, really stood out to him. And it's a pretty old one, actually. It's interesting that it's from uh, February 2004 at TED in Monterey, California. So the reason that we do these speech breakdowns uh, is we know that one of the greatest ways to become a better presenter uh, and a better communicator is to watch how other people do it and have a, have a think about what works for them and uh, also, you know, what doesn't work, which gives us a way of taking on board tactics, tools, techniques that could work for us and maybe some things to avoid. Yes, so what we're going to do is play the talk and pause at any moments that we feel worthy of comment, uh, whether positive or something that doesn't quite land with us as much. And I would like to point out, I've not seen this talk, but we've got the screen up here. And this guy looks like Sideshow Bob. His <laughs> hair is, is, is like Sideshow Bob. It's from 2004, but it looks like it's from the 80s so far. It's um, just a very interesting aesthetic. It does not look modern at all. Well, it didn't take long to get into the judgment here, Kate. <laughs> all right. Uh, I before... didn't say it was negative. I didn't say <laughs> Bob is a negative thing. It's just, it's just the look that he's got going with the clothes and the hair and the stance. It's... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why don't we get stuck into it? Yep. Uh, this is Malcolm Gladwell in February 2004 at TED with Choice happiness and spaghetti sauce. I think I was supposed to talk about my new book, which um, is called Blink, and it's about snap judgments and first impressions. And it comes out in January, and I hope you all buy it in triplicate. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about this, and I realized that, my, um, that although my new book makes me happy, and um, I think will make my mother happy, it's not really about happiness. Uh, so. I decided instead um, I would talk about someone who I think has done as much to make Americans happy um, as perhaps anyone over the last uh, 20 years. All right. So what's your first thoughts about this introduction here? It's very 2004, isn't it? And we obviously have the, the advantage of looking back at this um, from mm. how presentations are in 2020 in the last couple of years. This idea of um, giving a little bit of uh, background around the things he thought he might talk about and what he might be expected to talk about, but those are clearly not what he's going to talk about. And that's, it just feels like a little bit of sort of filler, doesn't it? it it's actually like, what we nowadays recommend against because yeah. what, like when we often have people who start their talks with like, oh, I was going to talk about this, but then I thought I'll talk about this instead. And then I thought, and we say to people, don't tell us what you're not going to talk about. Tell us what you are going to talk about. And I feel like now what he's about to say should be the hard start. Yeah. I would have liked to get rid of the first 30 seconds. Having said that, the way he's gone about this, uh, telling us what he's not going to talk about, he's given a little bit of credibility, like he has a book. Yeah, that's true. And it's also introduced just a little bit of humour. It's not the way I would recommend somebody to start, but it has kind of worked in half the ways as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't hate it. 
Although I did have just a bit of a giggle that he was talking about first impressions when I have made a massive judgment on his first impression. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's keep going. Um, as perhaps anyone over the last uh, 20 years, a man who is a, a great personal hero of mine, um, someone by the name of Howard Moskowitz, who is most famous for reinventing spaghetti sauce. Um, Howard is, uh, Howard's about this high, and he's round, and he's um, in his 60s, and he has big, huge glasses and thinning gray hair, and he has a kind of wonderful exuberance and vitality, and he keeps a, has a parrot, and he loves the opera, and he's a great aficionado of, of uh, medieval history. And he, uh, by profession, he's a psychophysicist. Can I make a comment that's not about Malcolm, but about something that's going on in the audience? Yeah, yeah. Did you hear the mobile phone ring? Yeah. This is just a note for if you're ever in an audience and the MC or the boss tells you to turn your phones off, turn your phones off. 2004, they've probably like just got vibration. Oh, yeah. He's all excited about his new ringtone that he's just downloaded off. Like the old Nokia poly polyphonic yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it is, it is quite annoying. Like it's quite prominent. And it, I mean, Mal Malcolm has not been phased by it, but I've seen many, many speakers where a phone goes off in the audience and it throws them. They pull a mental blank because they've been distracted. Um, yeah. And this has obviously come through the recording, which is, you know, pretty... pretty not ideal. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, kudos to Malcolm here. Yeah, turn your phones off. That's the message here. Yeah. He's just done a really interesting description of someone. And with just a few words, he's given such a well-rounded picture of someone describing their physical and their personality and their intellect, all just with a few couple of words. And I find like I can visualize, what's his name? Danny DeVito. Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess I can see how that fits the description, yeah. but, but I can visualize this guy that he's describing. Moskowitz, I think his name was. Yeah, quite clearly. I think he's done that beautifully. Let's keep going. And he, uh, by profession, he's a psychophysicist. Now, I should tell you that I have no idea what um, psychophysics is, although at some point in my life, I dated a girl for two years who was getting her doctorate in psychophysics. Um, we should tell you something about that relationship. But... <laughs> Howard, as far as I know, psychophysics is about measuring things. Um, and Howard is very interested in measuring things. And he graduated with his doctorate from Harvard, and he set up a little consulting shop in um, White Plains, New York. And one of his first clients was, this is many years ago, back in the early 70s, one of his first clients was Pepsi. And Pepsi came to Howard, and they said, you know, we, there's this new thing called aspartame, and we would like to make diet Pepsi. And we'd like you to figure out how much aspartame we should put in each can of Diet Pepsi in order to have the perfect drink. Right? Now, that sounds like an incredibly straightforward question to answer. And that's what Howard thought, because Pepsi told him, look, we're working with a band between 8 and 12%. Anything below 8% sweetness is not sweet enough. Anything above 12% sweetness is too sweet. We want to know what's the sweet spot between 8 and 12. I think following on from what you said, Kate, about giving enough detail to understand what's going on, and he's continued that here with there's probably a whole lot of complexity into uh, this particular job with Pepsi. But just knowing that we have this new sweetener, 8% the minimum, 12% the maximum, we're going to have to find a sweet spot. Just enough detail there to not be overwhelming, but we know what's going on. He's it's just, given us a beautiful, clear through line of this story, hey? 
yeah, you certainly set up a question, a little bit of stakes here um, to keep us listening and, and you know, what's going to happen in this, in this little anecdote that he's telling us. We want to know what's the sweet spot between 8 and 12. Now, if I gave you this problem to do, you would all say it's very simple. What we do is you make up a big experimental batch of Pepsi at every degree of sweetness, 8%, 8.1, 8.2, 8.3, all the way up to 12. And we try this out with thousands of people, and we plot the results on a curve, and we take the most popular concentration, right? Really simple. Howard does the experiment, and he gets the data back, and he plots it on a curve, and all of a sudden he realizes it's not a nice bell curve. In fact, the data doesn't make any sense. It's a mess. It's all over the place. Right? Now, most people in that business, in the world of testing food and such, are not dismayed when the data comes back a mess. They think, well, you know, figuring out what people think about cola is not that easy. You know, maybe we made an error somewhere along the way. You know, let's just make an educated guess, and they simply point and they go for 10%, right in the middle. <laughs> Howard is not so easily placated. Howard is a man of a certain degree of intellectual standards. And this was not good enough for him. And he, this question bedeviled him for years. And he would think it through and say, what was wrong? Why could we not make sense of this experiment with Diet Pepsi? And one day, he was sitting in a diner in White Plains, about to go trying to dream up some work for Nescafe. And suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, the answer came to him. And that is that when they analyzed the Diet Pepsi data, they were asking the wrong question. They were looking for the perfect Pepsi, and they should have been looking for the perfect Pepsis. Trust me, this was an enormous revelation. I would like to make comments on, and, and I think you should listen out for the calmness with which Malcolm is presenting here. I think his pace, uh, like the, his rate of speech, his pace is super appropriate for the amount of detail that he's delivering in his stories uh, and the, the little bit of uh, data that has come through. But also when he delivers uh, a pertinent point, he makes a good pause afterwards. Like we just heard here, we were asking the wrong question. We should have been asking for the right Pepsis. And he had a pause. And he actually had a gesture came with that too, like a hand gesture that sort of um, the stop sign gesture as well. It's just very calm and I think well-paced delivery. It's just worth mm. listening out for. It is. It's comfortable. He, he looks and sounds like he's just comfortable and not at all nervous. He's easy to listen to, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This was an enormous revelation. This was one of the most brilliant breakthroughs in all of food science. And Howard immediately went on the road, and he would go to conferences around the country, and he would stand up and he would say, you have been looking for the perfect Pepsi. You're wrong. You should be looking for the perfect Pepsis. And people would look at him with a blank look, and they would say, what are you talking about? It's craziness. And they would say, you know, move next. Try to get business. Nobody would hire him. He was obsessed, though, and he talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. Howard loves the Yiddish expression, to a worm in horseradish, the world is horseradish. This was his horseradish. <laughs> he was obsessed with it. And finally, he had a breakthrough. Vlasic Pickles came to him. And they said, Mr. Moskowitz, Dr. Moskowitz, we want to make the perfect pickle. And he said, there is no perfect pickle. There are only perfect pickles. And he came back to them and he said, you don't just need to improve your regular. You need to create zesty. And that's where we got zesty pickles. <laughs> then the next person came to him, and that was Campbell's Soup. And this was even more important. In fact, Campbell's Soup is where Howard made his reputation. Campbell's made Prego. And Prego in the early 80s was struggling next to ragu, which was the dominant spaghetti sauce of the 70s and 80s. 
There was another mobile phone. Yeah, and another one. And it had the little Nokia message tone going on too. Just the ringtone's going to pinpoint the age of this. (laughs) It's true. Because the the iPhone, like the first smartphone came out in, what, 2007? So (laughs) this immediately dates it, yes. Please don't be listening just for ringtones. Please actually listen to the talk, right? (laughs) I'm enjoying this. He's a really lovely storyteller. I'm just sitting back just enjoying this. I've not watched this before, so this is the first time I'm hearing it. Yeah, brilliant storytelling. Um, And he's... He's adding in little bits of humour in there, um, that, like the Yiddish expression that came up fits in very nice. I didn't get that. Uh, okay. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think it was a case of it was a, a very slight detour almost for humour's sake. It's, it pushed yeah. the story forward, but I don't think he missed out by missing that as well. Yeah, people seem to like it though. Like he got a couple of good laughs. Like I didn't yeah. get it, but I mean, clearly it worked and it wasn't a long detour, so leave it in. Yeah, he's also uh, doing very well with progressing this story. So there mm. wasn't any, any laborious why these people didn't hire him. It's just he talked about it, he talked about it, these people didn't want to know about it, these people, then these people came to him. Just we're moving this story along at an appropriate pace. Of the 70s and 80s. Now, in the industry, I don't know whether you care about this or how much time I have to go into this, but it was, technically speaking, this is an aside, Prego is a better tomato sauce than ragu. The quality of the tomato paste is much better. The spice mix is far superior. It adheres to the pasta in a much more pleasing way. In fact... They would do the famous bowl test back in the 70s with, rag, with ragu and prego. You'd have a plate of spaghetti and you would pour it on, right? And the ragu would all go to the bottom and the prego would sit on top. That's called adherence. And anyway, despite the fact that they were far superior in adherence. Do you know what I really don't like that he just did? Oh, okay, because I really liked something he just did. Go on, go oh, on. Because he said, like, I don't know if you care about this or not. I think he's got the stage and he's making quite a pertinent point here about whatever he's about to make a point about if it's important, which it feels like it is to this story. Yeah. I think I disliked him like dismissing his own little piece there. Mm. Yeah. Cause I think what I'm enjoying about this is I think I'm learning, but it doesn't feel like learning. It just feels like I'm listening to something really interesting that happens, which I think is the best kind of learning. Is when you don't feel like you're doing it, when it just kind of just happens. Learning through storytelling, right? Yeah. It's easy, yeah. Yeah, so I think I didn't like him just diminishing a little part of what he said. Yeah, totally. The thing I really liked there was he talked about there was the two pasta sauces and there was a little bit of gesture went this, but I think it carries through audio only. He said you'd pour them on, one sank through to the bottom and the other one the sauce sat on top. And I think we can probably talk about adherence and how it sticks to the pasta but just that visual of seeing in your own mind the sauce sinking through the bowl of pasta or sitting on top, I think that's some very clever visual storytelling. That's some very mm. a clever way of leveraging people's own internal mind's eye. So well done there. Yeah, yeah. They were far superior in adherence and the quality of their tomato paste. Prego was struggling. So they came to Howard and they said, fix us. And Howard looked at their product line and he said, what you have is a dead, potatoes society, a dead tomatoes society. So he said, this is what I want to do. And he got together with the Campbell's Soup Kitchen and he made... He just made a joke and he stumbled over his words. Yeah. And it lost the impact of the joke. And we're not big on scripts unless it's something that absolutely needs to be word perfect. Hmm. But I'm big on getting word perfect little things like, for example, if you've got a statistic that you need to memorize or a quote 
that needs to be word for word. And the other one is a joke. Practice <laughs> yeah. the wording of your joke because he just lost all his impact by stumbling over the words. And I think it would have had quite the laughs if he hadn't stumbled. I think conversely as well, uh, the way he recovered was good. He didn't make a fuss about it. He just sort of restated it as best he could and moved on, realised the joke was lost. So uh, just a little bit of yeah, confidence true. there in just keep the show moving. We lost a joke, but that's fine. And he got together with the Campbell's Soup Kitchen and he made 45 varieties of spaghetti sauce. And he varied them according to every conceivable way that you can vary tomato sauce. By sweetness, by level of garlic, by tartness, by sourness, by tomatoiness, by visible solids, my favorite term in, in, this, <laughs> in the spaghetti sauce business. Every conceivable way you can vary spaghetti sauce, he varied spaghetti sauce. And then he took this whole raft of 45 spaghetti sauces and he went on the road. He went to New York, he went to Chicago, he went to Jacksonville, he went to Los Angeles. And he brought in people by the truckload into big halls. And he sat them down for two hours and he gave them over the course of that two hours, 10 bowls. 10 small bowls of pasta with a different spaghetti sauce on each one. All right, for starters, why was I not part of this trial? Because that sounds awesome. <laughs> I want 10 bowls of pasta with strange spaghetti sauces on them. <laughs> Again, though, we're seeing visual storytelling. The guy went to all of these different cities. He had, I think we can see how those halls of people would work. Um, he's giving us the detail of this research and this study without sort of jumping into, here's what the data told us, but rather sort of the visual process that happened there that helps us to, to see exactly what's going on. And I think as listeners, we can just about place ourselves inside those stories and be a part of the, the research, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that. 10 small bowls of pasta with a different spaghetti sauce on each one. And after they ate each bowl, they had to rate from zero to 100 how good they thought the spaghetti sauce was. At the end of that process, after doing it for months and months, he had a mountain of data about how the American people feel about spaghetti sauce. And then he analyzed the data. Now, did he look for the most popular brand variety of spaghetti sauce? No, Howard doesn't believe that there is such a thing. Instead, he looked at the data and he said, let's see if we can group these different, all these different data points into clusters. Let's see if they congregate around certain ideas. And sure enough, if you sit down and you analyze these, all this data on spaghetti sauce, you realize that all Americans fall into one of three groups. There are people who like their spaghetti sauce plain. There are people who like their spaghetti sauce spicy. And there are people who like it extra chunky. And of those three facts, the third one was the most significant. Because at the time, in the early 1980s, if you went to a supermarket, you would not find extra chunky spaghetti sauce. And Prego turned to Howard and they said, are you telling me that one third of Americans crave extra chunky spaghetti sauce and yet no one is servicing their needs? And he said, yes. And Prego then went back and completely reformulated their spaghetti sauce and came out with a line of extra chunky that immediately and completely took over the spaghetti sauce business in this country. And over the next 10 years, they made $600 million off their line of extra chunky sauces. And everyone else in the industry looked at what Howard had done and they said, oh my God. I think there would be a couple of different ways of telling this bit of the story about the extra chunky. <laughs> I think you could deliver it quite deadpan and not have it a feature, but he's specifically kind of recognized 
almost the ridiculousness because it's yeah. such a whimsical, like we're talking about spaghetti sauce, you know, we're not talking yeah. about like world peace. <laughs> yeah. I think he's recognized that. I think what he's done is he's like, he's picked up his energy of it. He's yeah. like, this is a little bit silly. Let's have a bit of fun here. And I, yeah, I think realizing the almost whimsical nature of it has been powerful for his energy and delivery here. Yeah. He's allowing himself not to be taken so seriously. And I think that does a lot for his likability. Yeah, for sure. I'm really enjoying this. I like this guy for sure. He's got huge likability factor. Given this last story about they did this study and they found that one third of people liked these chunky spaghetti sauce. It was not a market item. They made it an item and turned a profit on that. I just want you to think about if this story now has you thinking, whether you're in business, whether you're in a position as, as a leader in your, in your business or anything like that, if this story has you thinking about idea, I mean, it's got me thinking about like, this is how you find a niche. This is how you find an item that the market uh, is craving, but doesn't have. And I think just the, the delivery of this story is thought provoking in that aspect. It is not delivered purely for entertainment purpose. And everyone else in the industry looked at what Howard had done and they said, oh my God, we've been thinking all wrong. And that's when you started to get seven different kinds of vinegar and 14 different kinds of, of mustard and 71 different kinds of olive oil. And, and then eventually even ragu hired Howard. And Howard did the exact same thing for ragu that he did for Prego. And today, if you go to the supermarket, a really good one, and you look at how many ragus there are, do you know how many they are? 36 in six varieties. Cheese, light, robusto, rich and hearty, old world traditional, extra chunky garden. <laughs> That's Howard's doing. That is Howard's gift to the American people. Now, why is that important? <clears throat> it is, in fact, enormously important. And I'll explain to you why. Because what Howard did is he fundamentally changed the way the food industry thinks about making you happy. Assumption number one in the food industry used to be that the way to find out what people want to eat, what will make people happy, is to ask them. And for years and years and years and years, Ragu and Prego would have focus groups. And they would sit all you people down and they would say, what do you want in a spaghetti sauce? Tell us what you want in a spaghetti sauce. And for all those years, 20, 30 years, through all those focus group sessions, no one ever said they wanted extra chunky, even though at least a third of them deep in their hearts actually did. <laughs> People don't know what they want, right? As Howard loves to say, the mind knows not what the tongue wants. It's a mystery. I think, um... The, the, the point he's sort of making here, it just reminds me of something which is like people often don't know what the options are. It just reminds me of the Henry Ford quote, which he may or may not have said, which is, I believe the quote is, if I had asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And again, oh, yeah. that speaks to this idea of uh, not exactly the focus groups, but doing the research and finding out what the market has a need for, but is not being served. Just a little bit of what I'm seeing in this talk and, and thinking, you know, as a business owner, and I imagine maybe you're at home or wherever you are thinking about this as well uh, in, in how it relates to your business, your position uh, and your line of work. Hmm. Something that I would encourage people to do is to actually go back a few minutes on this talk and the recording here, I don't know if it's old tech or if it's just the 
Uh, it's 2004. I'm like talking like it's like 1960 <laughs> old tech. Um, but the recording here is picking up like all of the audience noise. So we had like, we've talked about the mobile phones and you've got like a bit of shuffling and you know, you hear some coughs, but through this whole story, you heard that. And the minute that he changed that he went from like talking about the story of spaghetti sauce. Now, why is that important? Hit them with the real learning from that. And the audience stopped there was suddenly no audience noise and you can, you can kind of feel that audience more than you can hear it. And you can feel that they have stopped and they are leaning in and they are listening. And that is the purpose of a good story. If you can get them laughing, laughing, enjoying, enjoying, hit them with some facts, some information. That's what he's done. Like people are listening to what he has to say because he's just done such a brilliant lead up into that. And the audience reaction is noticeable. Totally. Yeah. Giving them a reason to listen. All right, let's go. The mind knows not what the tongue wants. It's a mystery. An, import, an critically important step in understanding our own desires and tastes is to realize that we cannot always explain what we want deep down. If I asked all of you, for example, in this room, what you want in a coffee, you know what you'd say? Every one of you would say, I want a dark, rich, hearty roast. So people always say when you ask them what they want in a coffee, what do you like? Dark, rich, hearty roast. <laughs> what percentage of you actually like a dark, rich, hearty roast? According to Howard, somewhere between 25 and 27% of you. Most of you like milky, weak coffee. <laughs> but you will never, ever say to someone who asks you what you want that I want a milky, weak coffee. <laughs> so that's number one thing that Howard did. Number two thing that Howard did is he, he made us realize, it's another very critical point, he made us realize in the importance of what he likes to call horizontal segmentation. Why is this critical? It's critical because this is the way the food industry thought before Howard. Right? What were they obsessed with in the early 80s? They were obsessed with mustard. In particular, they were obsessed with the story of Great Poupon. Right? Used to be there were two mustards, French's and Golden's. What were they? Yellow mustard. What's in yellow mustard? Yellow mustard seeds, turmeric, and paprika. That was mustard. Great Poupon came along with a Dijon. Much more uh, volatile brown mustard seed, some white wine, a nose hit, much more delicate aromatics. And what did they do? They put it in a little tiny glass jar with a wonderful enameled label on it. May it look French, even though it's made in Oxnard, California. <laughs> and instead of charging $1.50 for the eight ounce can, the way the eight ounce bottle, the way that French's and Golden's did, they decided to charge $4. And then they had those ads, right, with the guy in the Rolls Royce, and he's eating the Grey Poupon, and the other Rolls Royce pulls up, and he says, do you have any Grey Poupon? And the whole thing, after they did that, Grey Poupon takes off, takes over the mustard business. And everyone's take-home lesson from that was that the way to get to make people happy right, is to give them something that is more expensive, something to aspire to, right? Is to make them turn their back on what they like, think they like now, and reach out for something higher up the mustard hierarchy. <laughs> a better mustard, a more expensive mustard, a mustard of more sophistication and culture and meaning. <laughs> and Howard looked at that and said, that's wrong. Mustard does not exist on a hierarchy. Mustard exists just like tomato sauce on a horizontal plane. There is no good mustard or bad mustard. There is no perfect mustard or imperfect mustard. There are only different kinds of mustards that suit different kinds of people. He fundamentally democratized the way we think about taste. And for that as well, we owe Howard Moskowitz a huge vote of thanks. 
third thing that Howard did, and perhaps the most important, is Howard confronted the notion of the platonic dish. <laughs> what do I mean by that? For the longest time in the food industry, there was a sense that there was one way, a perfect way, to make a dish. You go to Chez Panisse, they give you the red tail sashimi with roasted pumpkin seeds in a something something reduction. They don't give you five options on the reduction, right? They don't say, do you want the extra chunky reduction or do you want the... <laughs> no, you just get the reduction. Why? Because the chef at Chez Panisse has a platonic notion about red tail sashimi. This is the way it ought to be. And when that, you know, and she serves it that way time and time again, and if you quarrel with her, she will say, you know what, you're wrong. This is the best way it ought to be in this restaurant. Now that same idea fueled the commercial food industry as well. They had a notion, a platonic notion of what tomato sauce was. And where did that come from? It came from Italy. Italian tomato sauce is what? It's blended, it's thin. The culture of tomato sauce was thin. When we talked about authentic tomato sauce in the 1970s, we talked about Italian tomato sauce. We talked about the earliest ragouts, which had no visible solids, right? Which were thin, and you just put a little bit over, the, and it sunk down to the bottom of the pasta. That's what it was. And why were we attached to that? Because we thought that what it took to make people happy was to provide them with the most culturally authentic tomato sauce, A, B. And B, we thought that if we gave them the culturally authentic tomato sauce, then they would embrace it. And that's what would please the maximum number of people. And Howard, and the reason we thought that, in other words, people in the cooking world were looking for cooking universals. They were looking for one way to treat all of us. And there's good reason for them to be obsessed with the idea of universals, because all of science through the 19th century and much of the 20th was obsessed with universals. Psychologists, medical scientists, economics, e economists, we're all interested in finding out the rules that govern the way all of us behave. But that changed, right? Last, what is the great revolution in science of the last 10, 15 years? It is the movement from the search for universals to the understanding of variability. Now in medical science, we don't want to know how necessarily, just how cancer works. We want to know how your cancer is different from my cancer. I guess my cancer is different from your cancer. We're interested in, genetics has opened the door to the study of human variability. What Howard Moskowitz was doing was saying, this same revolution needs to happen in the world of tomato sauce. And for that, we owe him a great vote of thanks. I'll give you one last illustration of variability. And that is, and, oh, I'm sorry, Howard not only believed that, but he took it a second step, which was to say that when we pursue universal principles in food, we aren't just making an error, we are actually doing ourselves a massive disservice. And the example he used was coffee. And coffee is uh, something he did a lot of work with, with Nescafe. <clears throat> if I were to ask all of you to try and come up with a brand of coffee, a type of coffee, a brew, that made all of you happy, and then I ask you to rate that coffee, the average score in this room for coffee would be about 60 on a scale of 0 to 100. If, however, you allowed me to break you into coffee clusters, maybe three or four coffee clusters, and I could make coffee just for one of those, for each of those individual clusters, your scores would go from 60 to 75 or 78. The difference between coffee at 60 and coffee at 78 is the difference between coffee that makes you wince and coffee that makes you deliriously happy. That is the final, and I think, most beautiful lesson of Howard Moskowitz. 
that in embracing the diversity of human beings, we will find a sure way to true happiness. Wow, okay, that is not where I thought that was going. Yeah, what it's an interesting um, end. Yeah, it's interesting. I nearly I nearly um paused and made comment about two minutes from the end there, but I think we'll we'll sort of talk about it now. But um I'm hoping everybody enjoyed uh, Malcolm Gladwell choice, happiness and spaghetti sauce as much as we did. What are your thoughts, Kate? I really I liked that. What an interesting way of getting a point across. What I loved was how his message was carried using this metaphor of spaghetti sauce and of food, because that's something that everyone understands. Everyone understands that I like this type of food and my partner, friend, kids, parents, like a completely different type of food. Like it's so relatable. And we didn't get the usual examples of human diversity. Mm. How clever. I think I I'm just blown away by the cleverness of this. Basically exactly what I was going to say. He told some excellent stories that were entertaining, got us thinking, um, built his likability, achieved an awful lot. And while they were about spaghetti sauce rather than sort of human, what do you call it? It was um, psychophysics, psychophysics. Mm. Um, <laughs> while it was about that rather than that, as you say, it built the metaphor. And it meant, you know, those last mm. two minutes where he was talking about the variability in spaghetti sauce is exactly the same as the variability in, like you said, cancer was one option. And yeah. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we talk about what was that one message that you got out of this? Cause I don't, I don't think in this instance, the title of the Ted talk is the message, which is choice, happiness and spaghetti sauce. What was no, I don't what, like that title? Yeah. What, what was the message you got out of it though? Kate? The message that I got is we need to embrace people's differences because we're all different. I, th I think it really is as simple as that. Yeah, I think I picked up that there were, uh, it was a line in there he said, which I'm paraphrasing, was there's power in, our, in the variability of people, um, mm. I think was his message. Is that what I'm thinking about? No, I'm thinking about those processes of finding out exactly what it is that people want, even though they don't know that it's an option yet. Mm. I feel what? like you've, yeah, I don't know if that was the final overall message. I feel that that was almost an aside possibly message yeah. like a secondary message mm. maybe oh i mean and it could have totally th this is the joy of every talk is people are often going to take away something a little bit mm. different flavored by their own experience and situation and what they think of you and what they think of themselves and those sort of things mm. yeah what what this is though i think is a reflection as you say it's a clever talk it's a reflection of a carefully crafted presentation there has been some mm. serious thought go into how do i communicate this message how do i um, get into it some of these things i want to talk about and how do i make that spaghetti sauce metaphor work for me how do i tell that um, so that it delivers a message at the end of the talk mm. yeah yes very well crafted very well done mm. i thought this guy was going to be like i thought the message was going to be something about marketing or yeah, some sort of business yeah. insight and then just like, bam, accept each other. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So that was message. What about physicality? What did you see in Sideshow Bob? <laughs> My goodness. You saw judgment. He's got baggy jeans and an oversized blazer and really curly, almost Afro hair. 
And I think maybe this was before Ted was such a big thing. Like this guy is clearly just interested in his message. Sorry, I asked you what you thought and then I just started talking. (laughs) But this guy, it feels like he's so interested in his message. This is not like the polished, really super chic TED Talks that we see nowadays. Mm. Because this is proper TED, isn't it? This is not TEDx. Yeah, this is proper TED back in a long time ago. But it's certainly... Yeah, I mean, it's certainly authentic. It, I, there's no part oh. of me thinks this isn't what Malcolm Gladwell looks like all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just that little bit wacky sort of way of storytelling and having a little bit of fun with himself. I mean, what we saw was really nothing remarkable, nothing noteworthy uh, in any sort of negative sense. He moved around no. the stage a bit. Uh, he had some good hand gestures. It was actually a little bit repetitive up the front, up the start of the, the talk, but um, mostly I just watched it and he was being very authentic and just comfortable with his physicality on stage very easy thing, to watch mm, yeah i think the only thing that niggled me at all was the lapel microphone he had some movement where the jacket rubbed against it um, mm. towards the end which is such a super minor thing that uh, was the only thing i saw that i thought yeah it's a bit off mm. did you see anything anything different there Kate? i mean i noticed he also didn't have a powerpoint but this was also 2004 as well Technology existed in 2004. Look, I thought we already established <laughs> the way we're the talking. Is just, yeah. Um, I think the recording's just not super high quality and yeah, it makes yeah. it look just a little bit older than it actually is. But no, I, there was nothing that was um, irritating to me at all. The stage is a little bit messy. It looks like they had a band there before or after. So you've got a bit of um, clutter on the stage. But otherwise. Classic, classic 2000s Ted right there. Yeah, it also um, is before the red dot of Ted. There's no big red dot that the speaker stays on. Mm. So thank you very much, Steve Bates, for recommending this talk. This is maybe the second or third time I've enjoyed listening to it. I think Kate loved it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time I've heard it. So I've put a link to the TED Talk in the show notes. You can go and have a look at Sideshow Bob and listen back through Choice, Happiness and Spaghetti Sauce. And if you too have a talk that you love out there and you'd like us to take a look at and maybe break down on this show, please do flick us an email you can get us podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Otherwise, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope you're staying safe and staying sane in the self-isolation. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, Click us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. Are you ringing? I have a four o'clock alarm, apparently. Yeah, well, it's four o'clock. Oh, it had a four o'clock this morning alarm as well. That was fun. Remember we just said, if you're watching a talk, turn your phone off, Kate. That wasn't a ringing. It's on silent. I I could hear that it was on silent. I specifically put it on silent. It's so silent. I could hardly hear it. (laughs) Should we continue with the talk here?